Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the new books and ideas podcast from American Purpose. Check out our website, AmericanPurpose.com, where you can subscribe to the newsletters, find details of how to register for our Zoom events, and read comment and analysis on the stories of the day. Coming up on the show, Edmund Fawcett, former economist, chief correspondent in Washington, Paris, and Berlin, on his new book, Conservatism, The Fight for a Tradition. Uh, Edmund, welcome to the show. Very glad to be with you. So congratulations on the new book. Uh, Of course, your previous book was on liberalism. So this one makes a pair. Indeed. It's like the the second shoe to drop. I mean, they they do make a pair because, as I see it, conservatism and liberalism grew up. um, They're the beginning of modern politics in, in Western Europe and the United States. And they grew up together early in the 19th century as competitors. Um, and part of the history is how they have compromised with each other, um, but yet maintained some sort of identity. So th- in, they always, in my mind, make a pair. And actually, one of the points that you make uh, in the book is that for liberal democracy to flourish, it needs conservatism. Um, it, it, it has to have a conservatism that accepts liberal and democratic ground rules, you say. Indeed. And there are a couple of interesting books. Well, certainly, I think that's become a fairly accepted idea in recent political science. I mean, you've studied, there's a Harvard historian, I think Daniel, isn't it? Daniel Ziblatt wrote a book illustrating that point with a ferociously large amount of data that if you look past through the 20th century, Liberal democracy has done best when there were was a conservative party, a coherent and to some extent continuous conservative party that in effect allowed business to sleep quietly at night. And without that, there has often been trouble, sometimes disastrous trouble, sometimes you know, lingering trouble. But I think that's been very important. Uh, a conservative party of the right that compromised and accepted the basic ground rules of liberal democracy. I mean, it's one of the things that you say very early on in the book, that even defining conservatism is a bit of a struggle. And in fact, you have a a whole section where you address this uh, in the book. So for listeners, what exactly is a conservative? Well, it's good. If if, if you take it as a, okay, give me a thumbnail, um, I'll give you a thumbnail. In some ground floor, pre-political sense, um, the conservative impulse reflects universal human desire for uh, order and stability, for tomorrow to be like today. Uh, And politically, conservatives have indeed um, spoken up for order and stability, for the rule of law, for prevailing distributions of property, for familiar customs, for smooth running of of the economy, which pays the bills and fills the shops. But at the same time, from the late 19th century onwards, um, those very aims obliged conservatives to um, embrace what they'd earlier feared and shunned, namely modern market capitalism, that great engine of um, prosperity and innovation that's forever turning society upside down and inventing new tomorrows. So that's, in a way, how I would best understand conservatism is struggling for continuity, but at the same time giving disruption. Conservatism's 
um, if you think of it, um, they promise, and they still promise, national community and global markets, social peace and meritocratic struggle, competence in office and yet deep suspicion of government, cultural tradition, together with continual, ceaseless cultural change. So I think my understanding of conservatism is not so much a sort of a neat definition, but an understanding of this continual wrestling with attention in what they offer. And I suppose, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, you quote Margaret Thatcher as saying uh, in the book, that many conservatives do, do not embrace the idea of being conservative. As the quote that you have is her saying that the real problem with the Conservative Party is the name of it. We are not a Conservative Party. We're a party of innovation, of imagination, liberty, striking out in new directions, all the kind of things that perhaps you might not necessarily associate with the word conservatism. No, indeed, indeed. I mean, you, you, you might mischievously say that one of the marks of a conservative is either that they deny that they are a conservative or that they insist that somebody else who's claiming to be a conservative isn't a conservative at all, um, which always makes me think that two, two, two things. One is that um, clearly in the minds of the people having this contest, there is something clear there called conservatism. And the second, it's worth fighting over. So m my feeling about all, all of this is what you look at is the history of a continuous tradition that starts in the 19th century and runs through to now. I mean, we all recognize it when we see it, however difficult it is to sum it up in a neat phrase. I mean, it is one of the things that is always striking to me, the difference in that word kind of as seen from here in the United States or in Britain where you are. I remember talking to George Will about his, his book on American conservatism and just wrestling with this idea that uh, of a conservatism that is rooted in a revolution and where even its modern conservative icons like Ronald Reagan end up quoting radicals like Tom Paine. So it is different difficult to disentangle sometimes, isn't it? It is. Um, it may be a helpful, I mean, something that I found helpful when um, doing this book was to, to distinguish to distinguish the distinction radical and moderate from the distinction um, uh, non-conservative and conservative. I mean, conservatives, I think it was um, Samuel Huntington who said that the enemy of conservatism is radical, radicalism. I think that gets it wrong. I think moderate and radical, they're like adverbs. They're, they're a matter of style. They are whether you are, as a radical, whether you're on the right, the left, a conservative, or an anti-conservative. When you're a radical, it's about how you set about things. You know, are you on the attack? Do you, are you um, going for unconditional surrender? Or are you, if you're a moderate, are you more cautious, ready to compromise? And I think it's often that those ideas get confused. Margaret Thatcher was unmistakably conservative, but she was quite a radical conservative. Um, and there are um, today what I call the hard right in, in Germany, France, Britain, and the United States. There are unmistakable conservatives who are nevertheless very radical rather than 
moderate conservatives. It's interesting that uh, tradition that you look back to, I mean, particularly thinking here in the context of the American election, that a lot of commentators have been pointing back to Madison and the idea of checks and balances, the quote that you have of the book, that the great difficulty in government uh, is that you enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. It is interesting how these kinds of writers constantly come to inform contemporary debates, not just historical ones? Well, Madison is a very interesting case because I, I, I include him as a conservative, but he, he builds into the constitutional structure, which, I mean, do you remember Richard Hofstadter, didn't he say it was something, a, a brilliant system of mutual frustration? He, he built into that um, a way that power could control itself you know, one power set against another. And yet there are ways in which Madison was unmistakably conservative. And this contrast, I think, sets up the possibility that many conservatives later came to compromise with liberal liberal democracy. They came to accept many of the ground rules, which earlier they had been quite reluctant to do. The other person who really struck me here as having a contemporary resonance um, was Disraeli. The the idea of two nations who, uh, between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy, who are ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts and feelings, as if they were dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets. Again, that's something that seems as relevant to the contemporary United States and beyond uh, as it does to Victorian Britain. I think that's very true, and um, it, it is extraordinary the extent to which, at least in public argument, there is this sharp division. I mean, you see it now, in, both in Europe and the United States. It's it's almost as if people who do argue in public will argue about almost anything. I mean, take the example of Britain in. We, we divided almost 50-50 over whether to leave the European Union or not. Now that's done, or at least is, about to, is in the process of being done. We're arguing about COVID. Uh, we're arguing about you know, whether it's wise to wear masks, whether COVID is not somehow grossly exaggerated. And, and what strikes me is not you know, who's right, who's wrong, but it is the, the division of the country and the sharpness of the division and as I'm sure you know, there are political scientists have poured over this question of polarization, um, the division of the nation in, in public argument. And th- there are two views. One is that the polarization reflects a deep social cleavage, um, you know, that people, as it were, who f- fight over politics, partisan politics, Democrats, Republicans, Um, They also separate in many other ways, where they live, who they marry, where they go to school, what they read, and so on. A different school looks on polarization as the political, as something to do much more with politics, that, as it were, extremes in politics tend to um, get heard more easily. They tend to attract their followings. They tend to be the places where people are interested in politics, which is always a minority, they tend to gather. And these fringes are not, in fact, representative 
of a broad middle ground. So there you have two very distinct views as to whether you know, there really are two nations or whether it's simply an effect of politics that there appear to be two nations. And it's interesting that, I mean, Disraeli's idea very much was that conservatism could represent the nation, uh, that uh, it was not about the top 10,000 or the, the, I guess, the 1%, as we, as we might say now, um, that, that the, that top 1% represented a kind of oligarchy that was looking down on ordinary people and that conservatism could actually find a way of embracing them. Yes, I mean you could you could you could take two views about Disraeli. You could you could take the um, you 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 could take the sort of sympathetic view that he was indeed um, looking on the nation um, and saying that as it were all classes um, needed to be um, heard and with with their needs met. A less sympathetic view would be that uh, he was recommending a a silencing of um, kind of legitimate disruptive demands, um, first of all from liberals and later um, you know, after his death from um, the working class movement, the working movement. So, I mean, Disraelism, one nation conservatism, uh, to my ear, always is ambiguous. We've spent a lot of time talking about uh, Britain and the United States, which is uh, probably a reflection of my interest more than a reflection of the book, uh, because actually you cover a kind of a wide range of European countries as well, continental European countries. Uh, in well, the France books. and Germany, yes. France and Germany in particular. Um, what about continental Europe then? The distinction between a kind of liberal conservatism and often what is seen as the more authoritarian right um, seems to be more sharply drawn there, especially in the 20th century, obviously. Yes. Um, I, I think here there is a, there's a kind of optical problem um, that partly because of um, the catastrophe that Germany visited on itself in the world, 1933 to 45, um, and partly because th- there was a more energetic far right in France than either the United States or Britain, although I'll come back to that in the United States. Um, There is this suggestion that two kinds of conservatism. There is the moderate, sensible conservatism of Britain that was inherited in the United States of avoiding heedless change, of um, wise and careful um, management of the ship. Um, whether in calm weather or stormy. On the other hand, there is the continental European tradition, which is wild, authoritarian, not to be trusted, and slightly mad. And and that caricature um, can be traced to two figures that I start the book with. One very well known in the English-speaking world, Edmund Burke, and the other um, less known, but when he is known, something of a demon figure, Joseph de Mestre. And I I think my sense is that this contrast is really a caricature uh, throughout in Germany and France with their very different institutional traditions. There was always a strong liberal movement and indeed a liberal conservatism. 
I mean, if you think of just to take France um, in, in, in the period that I cover from 1880 to 1945, where, where I give sort of artificially sharp dates. But in that period, the Third Republic, um, France emerged as, in some sense, the first full liberal democracy. And it had parties of the right and parties of the left, but both of them accepted the rules of the game, of liberal democratic game. And until military defeat in 1940, um, despite a rocky um, time in the 1930s, which everybody suffered with the Great Depression, um, the Third Republic came through. Germany was a different case. Um, but even there, in the Wilhelmine Republic, there were conservative parties um, that accepted, um, to a degree, electoral democracy. They accepted, um, to a large extent, uh, a degree of civil, of civil liberties and so forth that were the ingredients of the fragile um, liberal democracy that emerged after the First World War. So here again, I think there's, there's a sort of Anglo-American Anglo tendency to exaggerate the contrast between the traditions. And I'll just throw in one final thought there, which is that um, if you do believe in some deep historical contrast, you have quite a difficult task explaining why it was that after 1945, these four countries converged very, very fast on very, very similar forms of politics. Yeah, that was one of the things that really struck me, actually, that, you know, if you take, for example, Adenauer in Germany, de Gaulle later in France, Macmillan, the likes of Macmillan in Britain, Eisenhower, all these figures are kind of around that they are actually very similar. You'd be you'd struggle to slip a cigarette paper between any of them <laughs> philosophically. Absolutely. And I've always I've always been struck by how, how strong that is. And it's not because, you know, as it were, the Cold War made them um, forget their differences. They're, they were coming to be the, very much the same kind of politician for other reasons. Although it is interesting that, I mean, you mentioned the Cold War there, that the breakdown that you were describing earlier, first of all with Reagan and Thatcher, but then subsequently leading up to, for example, 2016 and Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and so on, that that period does coincide with the breakdown of the Cold War. How important do you actually think that is as a, as a factor? Um, the breakdown of the Cold War? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's very important. I think... Um, I think I think the uh, I mean uh, this sort of rather bewildering time that we're living in politically. Um, I think owes a lot to um, the breakdown of a um, geopolitical framework that enabled people to. Um, it, it, it gave a world framework for local politics, for national politics. Um, the breakdown of that geopolitical order, seen in another way, was also the rapid rise of new powers like China, and indeed the rise of global markets, which have had huge social effects. That last one particularly, the shriveling of industry, the creation of um, a kind of precariat in employment. Um, 
and with that, a weakening of governments as they have been you know, burdened with their tasks. Uh, and a final element, I think, in the, this bewildering time we're in is the, the weakening of the left, the capture of the left by um, public sector unions in party terms and in, by identity politics, and a weakening of the left intellectually in that its, it's great traditions of economic and social um, investigation and analysis have really, they, they've given way to what I call much more of a kind of an aesthetic, uh, ethical kind of criticism that flourishes in the humanities departments of universities, but not really anywhere else. Yeah, I was I, I was very struck by that actually because you you do actually say in the book that the left is in retreat both intellectually um, and that the right commands politics uh, at kind of at, at, at present. And I, I was surprised by that because in in many ways the left seems to have a very firm grip on the universities, on publishing, uh, and so on. And and but it seems to me that really what you're saying is that this is about quality. Of analysis that uh, although these although people may be in command at, at universities, they're not actually producing work which you would consider to be uh, kind of important and good for uh, the health of liber liberal democracy. Uh, well, you put it very well, and I say that as somebody of the left. But I mean, I, 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 okay. I mean, there are there are critics of global capitalism. Um, that's true. But there's not a lot of um, policy that comes out of that. I think that, the, and besides, I, th I think just to go back a step, I think the the idea that the left dominates the media and the universities is a little bit a right wing invention. I mean, if if one looks at um, Fox News or um, the British press or if you look at um, university departments that are either non-political, namely the sciences and medicine, or departments that are a little bit political, like law, I don't think the left dominates these at all. These are the ones where the money goes and which make the money later. So I feel that the, that, you know, the right's complaint, the domination of the left, is, it's a bit of a bogey. Of course, this, it's, it's a funny week in order to be saying the left is in retreat when Joe Biden um, appears, um, although the White House may not yet acknowledge it, to have won the presidential election. Yeah, let's talk about Joe Biden. Uh, I mean, by any European standard, he's a centre-right politician, isn't he, I think? Absolutely. And um, I mean, there's a, I was amused that I read some, some um, supporter of Donald Trump saying, you know, they were fighting socialism. And I was remembering that um, it's, it's, it's in my book that when Eisenhower was um, nominated in 1952, a supporter of his opponent who lost, um, Taft, said, well, this means eight more years of socialism. <laughs> this is not socialism by any historical, you know, in, in any historical sense, as, as you say. And indeed, um, Biden's economic proposals are far more moderate than those um, of Bernie Saunders or, um, um, yes, Bernie Saunders. 
And it, I mean, it does seem to have interesting implications as well, doesn't it? Because uh, perhaps it suggests that the centre-right actually is the middle ground in politics these days. The last British election seemed to suggest that too. So, you know, is, that, is this the new middle ground, the, the centre-right? Well, it's certainly if if you if you take a you know, if you take a long view, if you the last sixty years or so, um, sixty seventy years. I mean, from in the modern period, from nineteen forty five, let's say, the parties of the centre right have dominated office um, without question. So I think you know your suggestion is probably right. Um, I mean, as somebody you know, left wing liberal myself. Um, I think that possibly um, one um, clear line of future for the left is is um, in in what you could call micro politics. I mean that there is a common distinction made between macro politics of where you are organize your political party in order to win government power, um, but you can do a great deal. Um, at a micro or local level. Why do I sound so gloomy about it? Because it seems to me that the parties of the left across Europe and to some extent in, in Britain, are um, they're in retreat. I mean, the German Social Democratic Party, which was once a majoritarian party, is down to around 20% of the vote. Um, in France, the old um, Socialist Party similarly has um, fallen back very badly. There is a, in each place, there is a, a, a fairly um, strong, truly socialist party to their left. But n- none of these look like being serious contenders for power in the near future. The Labour Party is coming back after a disastrous election. But again, um, it, it has a long way to go. Yeah, I wondered to what extent that's about a connection to the working class that I seem to remember seeing data from the last British election that for the first time, the majority of of working class voters voted Conservative, not Labour in England. Um, Where where does Boris Johnson fit into this? I know you have a a family connection with Boris Johnson. (laughs) How does he, uh, family loyalty to to one side, how does he fit into this, this picture of modern Conservatism? Well, he's a very interesting case. I mean, on <laughs> since you mentioned it, family connection. Um, you know, politics divides families, but it doesn't kill affection. Um, so, where does he fit in? I think he's a very interesting case. Um, he's immensely talented, and I think I call him in the book a trimmer, which might sound like a slur, but is in fact a compliment. Goes back to the um, the the um, Kind of non-party figure at the end of the 17th century, Halifax, who talked about the trimmer as being the, the supreme statesman, a trimmer being an, a nautical metaphor, you know, somebody sailing a ship well. Um, Johnson is very, very good. He's a good improviser, but he's an improviser, I think, by circumstance. He can't help but be. Why? Because I don't think the Tory party has really had a clear direction or a clear um, uh, set of governing principles. Since Thatcher, Brexit provided um, a um, a kind of a great campaign, but now that's being done, uh, there's there's quite a gap. 
Johnson to me represents what I call the hard right. That is this odd amalgam of um, economically liberal globalists and um, one nation, um, one nation much less liberal um, right. And I think it's the voters you mentioned who had been previously Labour voters. I think they have rallied to the, um, you know, that second part. What is difficult for Johnson, as indeed difficult for Trump, and indeed I think it would be difficult for Biden, is to reconcile, somehow manage these two competing um, threads. Because on the one hand, you promise international business what it wants, which is the freedom to come and invest and create jobs, but then move them when times become difficult and indeed not have many labor protections or tiresome laws involving labor. That's what international business wants. And indeed, every country needs to attract that. But on the other hand, they need to promise to people in very distressed, deindustrialized areas some kind of um, uh, recovery. And that's going to be extremely difficult. What about the um, the conservatism in the United States after the defeat, uh, the likely defeat of Donald Trump uh, in the uh, the election? Presumably, there's going to be a shakeup, possibly a war of ideas going on. What do you see as the future of conservatism in the United States? Well, I think it's very very good. I think think that. Just as with Boris Johnson in Britain, um, Trump in the United States is an outsized personality, like him or hate him. There's no doubt he sort of gets inside people's heads. And I think because of that, um, he's been, um, he's disguised, he's sort of distracted us from the fact that something much deeper than him and long lasting is going on on the right. Put it more simply, I think the quarrel on the right about, about what Republicans ought to be will continue. Um, it'll outlast Donald Trump. It, it was there before him, and I think it'll outlast him. What is that quarrel? I think it's, to, to schematize, I think it's between three groups. One is the kind of old, rather dispirited, what I call the grown-ups, um, you know, the, the descendants of Eisenhower and Nixon, and to some extent, Reagan. Uh, they were kind of a more center-minded Republicans, ready to compromise with Democrats. They're then a second group who are the, what I call the Crusaders, you know, the one-issue Crusaders, um, particularly uh, the, the, um, the kind of moral crusading. Uh, abortion is a very obvious example, very important um, on the Catholic right. And thirdly, there's what I call the tribe, and that is the Trump Republicans, but they were there before Trump. Very important figure there, and I think an extraordinarily talented figure was Pat Buchanan, who, if you go back to his speeches that he wrote for Nixon and Reagan, if you go back to his many writings, his many campaigns, he said many, many, many of the things that Donald Trump tweeted. So I think that tradition, I call it the tribe, it's, again, the hard right, it's a, a little bit populist, a little bit very, very, very rich money. Um, I think that three-cornered fight will go on, um, and I don't see any easy resolution. 
But then the Republican Party in the United States has always been conflicted. So the book is Conservatism, The Fight for a Tradition. It's written by my guest, Edmund Fawcett, and published by Princeton University Press, price $35. Uh, but for now, Edmund, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the talk. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusic. Do join us again next time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.